Hello and Croiso to the Welsh Music Podcast. I'm James and as ever, I'm joined by Neil. How are you going, buddy? Very good, mate. How's things? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, so Thursday, 31st of March, we're recording the intro. We didn't get tickets to the Mannix at Club, but we've been listening to it on, on Six Music. Yeah, agonising really. But yeah, as soon as I saw it was the ballot with like, you know, 200 people there, I thought, ah, no, that's not going to happen, is it? <laughs> In saying that, uh, you know, I, I was lucky enough to get to the St. David's Hall socially distanced gig last year, 150 people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it sounded great earlier. They're playing like quite a few rarities tonight. They haven't played for ages. They, they, they're just an um, spectators of suicide with Gwenor, actually. Um, but yeah, um, Nicky Wire was saying, I think it's the 13th venue in Cardiff they've played. So the, the, the chapter was the first. Astoria? Uh, yeah, on the Holy Bible tour. But yeah, I mean, um, amazing uh, bit of history, really, that they'd never played Club Ivo Bach. Um, I'm sure you've seen the poster this week yeah. from 90 where they were due to play that anti-poll tax gig. Did they um, misspell Beggar Neves on that yeah. as well? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, the Manics pulled out, obviously, because I think they were signed. They had to go to London or something, didn't they? It was, yeah, and Tunnel Toweth were headlining. So yeah, um, the Manics are the first of yeah an amazing weekend of uh, music. Uh, proudly coming to Cardiff, uh, BBC Radio Six Music Festival. Oh mate, it's amazing when they uh, first announced it on the on the radio and it just kicked off on on social, didn't it? It was amazing and brilliant to have you know people like Pixies coming, uh, Gweno's playing as well on her, on her own, and um, Daya. Um, and we're off on Sunday to St David's Hall to see Griff Reese, Audiobooks, Cat Power, and Father John Misty. Yeah, with um, BBC National Orchestra of Wales. That'd be really special to hear. Um, I, th- I think Idols may, may even be playing two nights running in Cardiff now, which is a bit mad. Um, cause they're, they're playing with Adwife tonight, which was yeah. rescheduled from January, wasn't it? So, yeah. And, yeah, and they're playing with Pixies tomorrow night. So, yeah, that's that's quite mad. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, amazing to have the eyes of, the you know, the UK and, and overseas on, on Cardiff, yeah. Oh, mate, fantastic. You know, the... Uh... Was it Music City or whatever we were called? Yeah, brilliant. So another amazing episode today. Richard King, uh, author of the, um, the the recent sort of book about like your Welsh identity, so looking at the history of Wales between uh, nineteen sixty two and nineteen ninety seven. Not you know arbitrary, thrown away numbers in any way, shape, or form. But um, yeah, listen to the podcast uh, interview with Richard to, to to find out why he chose those 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 years. Um, but amazing, amazing interview, an amazing book deal. It is, yeah. I still haven't finished yet. It's quite a tome. It's about 500 pages. But um, it's amazing in terms of like, I, I think I read something like, I, I, it's definitely over 90 interviews. I think it's about 98 interviewees. Well, you know, interviews he arranged for the book, which is incredible, yeah. really. But I mean, I've read um, quite a few different books where, um, you know, it's, it's done in that quote-based sort of um, – style right i think it works really well here in terms of like you know the welsh voice has been like sort of oppressed you know historically and i think the, the fact that he's just let every one of the interviewees just speak works really really well what will change yeah the technique the, the the oral history that he he has in the book is um you know i think it really sort of helps bring the story to life a bit because it was you know, really puts the people who were there at the, you know, at the moment in history that he describes um, and, and giving their voice to them. But we talked to him more in sort of like the lens of, you know, music, obviously, and, you know, music playing a really important part in those years from, you know, 1962 and, you know, the formation of Come Day This Year, Yaith and all of the gigs that they were putting on and how that, you know, brought to life a, a new sort of movement 
you know promoting Welsh language um, in a, in, a, in a perhaps different way than it had done previously. You know, right through to ninety seven and, and devolution, and you know the you know the rise of Cool Cymru. So um, it was it was really interesting talking to him from a musical point of view. But Neil, you've probably been through that quite a lot over the last few weeks with uh, you know all of the interviews you've been doing for uh, for for another book. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, really exciting news, actually. Um, I'm working on a book with the University of Wales Press um, to celebrate their 100th uh, anniversary. Um, they've recently announced uh, a non-fiction imprint called Calon. It's going to be uh, an album-based sort of um, telling of the history of the decade, really. So um, obviously, you'll take in Britpop and, and Cool Cymru, two terms that make people sort of wince to an extent, you know, um, but nevertheless, like a really interesting era in how you can sort of um, juxtapose like who was, you know, belonging to those movements and who wasn't. I've got an, a chapter in mind at the moment about linking Generation Terrorists in 1992 Manic's debut with um, Neil Kinnock going for the general election in 1992, yeah. uh, which we talked about in um, this episode um, and how, the, the Mannix and Kinnock at the same time were sort of lambasted by the, the, the English press. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I want to cover devolution. I want to cover the explosion of culture. Obviously, uh, Twin Town actually is uh, 25 years old, believe it or oh, not. Oh, yeah. In, uh, April. April. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think well, the idea at the moment is I'm going to start with Dat Bluggy Pissed in 1990 and it's going to yeah. end with Mung in 2000. So yeah. And just the seismic shift in confidence that happened over that decade, I don't think it can be sort of overestimated. No, really. not at all. Uh, you know, by, by the end of the um, decade, you know, you had number one albums from the Manics, Catatonia, Stereophonics, um, huge gigs everywhere. You had Welsh film stars. You know, Wales was, you know, becoming ubiquitous in terms of like the Rugby World Cup as well. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting sort of period to look at. So, um, yeah, it's, it's um, an exciting project. It's going to be a labour of love, as I said, but a bit terrifying while working full-time as well. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, all good. Good stuff. Thanks again for, for sticking with us and, and, and listening to, uh, to to the podcast we've been putting back out recently. We really appreciate it and all of the kind words we get um, on socials. Giacomo Rando. Okay, Richard, thanks for joining us tonight. It's uh, lovely to have you on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, Croeso. Take us back to the start, Richard. You know, you were raised in a bilingual family in, in South Wales. What was the soundtrack to your childhood? Um, well, I was a, I like I like to make uh, a huge uh, amount from the fact I come from Newport, which I think is the Welshest town in Wales uh, <laughs> for various reasons. But as my friends like to point out, I was also a cathedral chorister in Newport, so I okay. wasn't that hard. <laughs> so I kind of grew up um, I grew up around church music quite a lot I, my parents were especially religious it's just I, I did sing in a choir yeah. and that kind of choral music but my my father was very into um, African music and my mother was quite musical and we had succession. Well, my grandmother, then a couple of great aunts lived with us, and their first language was Cymraeg, as was my mother's. And um, as my elderly relatives got more elderly, they got a bit more dementiary and kind of really reverted back to only really speaking in Cymraeg. So um, they would sing songs 
my when life's jackado and things like that. So I did I did hear kind of some Kamrag music um, <laughs> through, <laughs> through through my great aunt's deteriorating mental health. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that that was the, the first single I bought was the model by Kraftwerk, which I bought in Newport, W. H. Smith. Okay, and um, I, I, you know, I left Newport um, sort of in my teens, and then I was very aware of TJ's happening, kind of yeah, mid to late eighties. I didn't start going there properly until maybe 89, 90. So I kind of missed, um, I missed things like Big Black and playing Newport Centre upstairs and um, Butthole Surfers played there as well. I don't, I think there's film of both and the mind absolutely boggles. Yeah. Um, you know, when, where people were having lifeguard lessons in the in the bar above. They could see <laughs> Big Black on their final tour. Um, but uh, I did see a lot of things in in TJ's in the early nineties, and I was there when Hole played and Kirk oh, wow. was there. Uh, I remember quite vividly him standing at the back quietly, and at the end of the concert, some dude in the audience. Walked up to him and went, "So, Kurt," and I, I thought that's a very weird way to <laughs> approach someone. Um, but um, yeah, I, I guess um, being in Newport and, and having a thing like TJ's there and Rockaway, I I got very uh, Rockaway Records, the store run by Simon, who ran cheap, sweaty fun. Yeah, um, I was very kind of. Um, Influenced by by the network they were in in terms of the bands they promoted and where they, you know, the music they sold, and I was very aware early on that they supported Welsh language music, and you know, someone like Chris Moyne wanted, you know, felt like playing in somewhere in Newport was, in a way, more necessary than playing somewhere like um, Carnarvon, maybe. For, yeah. you know, at a certain point. Um, and then also in Newport, really aware of um, of, of jazz and at, at the hotel in the centre of town, you knew Van Morrison used to play sort of secret gigs. There. Yeah. And um, there's this great kind of sense of Rockfield not being very far away. And later on, when I worked in in the music industry, and I said I was from Newport, it really brought home to me how it was thought of as a music town. Yeah. Uh, possibly more of a music town than Cardiff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think a lot of that was to do with Rockfield, and I think a lot of it, to a small degree, was to do with it being the nearest town to England <laughs> and people thinking, oh, that's Wales then. <laughs> uh, you know, don't have to go any further. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I and uh, there was also a sense, kind of growing up, that um, you know Newport and Cardiff were felt quite multiracial growing up. Yeah. You know, both docks, docks places with docks, and yeah, I I can't say that I went 
Uh, and if I did go, I went probably with the modicum of paralysis and fear, but things like Pill Carnival, you knew there were sound systems happening there and um, knew there was reggae taking place there. And um, yeah, the music, the music of Newport, like from my youth felt very much like um, the music of a place that was being a bit battered. And I remember seeing Big Audio Dynamite play at Newport Centre and just, yeah, so, something like the clash and Joe Strummer's connection to Newport felt very sort of present that night, quite visceral presence, that kind of old punk energy. And then in 1989, I saw R.E.M., Play the Newport Center, and oh, wow. I think I've met everyone who says they were there. <laughs> but uh, that was a hell of an evening because because you saw a band about to get very very big playing uh, the kind of venue they probably hadn't played in America since their second record, yeah, and you know yeah. they 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 hadn't played they hadn't toured in the UK since Fables of the Reconstruction. They played. I think Hammersmith, Odin, now Apollo, for for the two albums that followed, but those were the only UK dates. I think I've got that right. So they hadn't played the provinces in in Britain for a long time, and I think the only date they'd done to that was in Wales was in Cardiff for Babel's the Reconstruction. So so that was quite a night, and um, I felt I felt like all, all the music kind of. Um, I'd experienced in the town growing up, maybe people who, who go to, you know, people just felt like they had a kind of punkish energy in Newport. And, you know, I felt like they even kind of brought that out in REM on the night. They felt oh, yeah. like, oh, we're in a proper music town here, you know, where people yeah. know their stuff. Talking of a band on the rise and playing Newport, did you, did you see Oasis uh, when they, when they visited? No. Um, they, they, I saw them play in Bristol at the Fleece and Firkin, maybe, maybe the. T- I mean, they they kind of did three tours really quickly. Yeah, ninety-four. Um, and I I didn't think they were very good. So I didn't oh, really, <laughs> 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 frankly, no, um, yeah. no. I mean, the things the things that TJ's I went to tended to be the American things. Okay, yeah. Um, Rocket from the Crypt were very memorable, but so were things like um, Zeni Geva, who were kind of a you know, mainly Japanese band, very, very heavy, produced by Steve Albini. And I saw Shellac there at least once. I saw Fugazi there, which was incredible. Wow. Um, but very much, very much that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, Am I right in thinking as well that um, it was Nirvana's first UK tour date at TJ's? Uh, no, it was Big Black and Husker Du's oh. first. In each each case, it was their first yeah. tour date. Uh, so as I understand it, there are people yeah. who could tell you the exact date. Um, <laughs> uh, and someone I know did a book of all the flies. But certainly it was Big Black's first European date, and I'm fairly sure Husker Du's as well. And with uh, the... Sorry, I'll I don't think Nirvana ever played TJ's. Oh, right, okay. I may um, have got that wrong. No, yeah. If I, I just, have, please, I, I don't think they did. It was definitely <laughs> um, yeah, only Hollow. It was like Mud Honey and all that and Tad and... Um, yeah, they, they, those tours came through. But yeah. um, the tour Nirvana did with um, 
when they all, all those bands played this story that that didn't go to TJ's. No. Oh, right, okay. So with the um, Kurt Cobain and uh, Courtney Love thing, it, w- yeah. is that true? Is that an urban myth or what? what what's mm-hmm. the story behind that? No, it's true. I mean, I subsequently met Russell Warby, who was Nirvana and Hull's agent and was the guy who drove Kurt down that night from London. And it was Hull, Therapy and Daisy Chainsaw. All right. Um, on the night. And... Hole were quite good. Um, it was the sort of original lineup from Pretty on the Inside, so it was pretty pretty wild. And I don't remember it being hyper hyper busy. I'd been at busier shows there. It was yeah. you know busy enough. And Kurt stood at the back in a in a long leather coat, pretty unassuming, not trying to draw any attention to himself. And I think on the way down. Him and Russell in the car, they've had a prang, if I've got that right. So maybe he's a little bit shaken up by that. Yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, he. I don't think um, I would like to say whether he actually proposed to Courtney Love and TJ's, but certainly that evening, right. I think he proposed to her. Yeah. Oh, wow. So this would be sort of like bleach era. Is this before Nevermind? I, I take no, it. no, it's after Nevermind. Oh, after oh, Nevermind. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's at the back after he went to Nevermind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, I mean, I think for a lot of people who were regulars at those cheap, sweaty, fun shows, there are kind of people who are pretty together and had seen quite a lot of life. <laughs> weren't the sort of people who were going to bother someone like him. Yeah. But the the most memorable show. I saw TJ's and the show that had an incredible effect on me as a, as a young man was Bikini Kill and oh, Huggy yeah. Bear. And Huggy Bear were, were good. Um, I'd seen them before quite a few times. By then I'd started putting records out and I was living in Bristol and working in a record shop called Revolver. And I ran a small DIY label that released mainly Bristol music. Um, was the kind of John Peel end of things in the early to mid nineties when no one listened to John Peel, which is a shame. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, that was uh, Planet Records, yeah. That was Planet Records, yeah, yeah. So we did we 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 put out a single by Yola Tengo before anyone had heard of them, and we put out a single by a band called Harry Pussy, um, sort of American noise band. So we put a couple of American. Bands, American bands are, and band very dear to my heart called Movie Tone and everyone was kind of involved in a band called Flying Saucer Attack um, I very occasionally played guitar in Flying Saucer Attack and we played TJ supporting Sebado oh, wow. and it was a terrible terrible show <laughs> um, but, but anyway at that time uh, when Bikini, yeah, so I'd seen Huggy Bear a few times I saw them First on the bill with Pavement and Sonic Youth in Bristol, maybe a year, maybe like six months before they played TJ's. And that, that was an amazing concert, um, an amazing lineup. But um, yeah, I mean, I know people who there was a bootleg released of the concert, and I know people. Uh, you can hear people heckling Huggy Bear, <laughs> and it's, it's quite funny. Uh, there are people. They'll remain nameless, but uh, they, they were shouting, say, 
They were shouting things like less structure, which I think is <laughs> undoubtedly a funny heckle. Yeah. Um, uh, and then uh, Huggy, but I mean, there was a bit of unpleasant sexism, definitely. But there was a sense that like these cool music press kids had turned up in their Nation of Ulysses t-shirts but didn't quite realise they were playing in front of a crowd who that some of whom had actually seen Nation of Ulysses. Yeah. So there was a kind of sense like, you know, we're not going to, um, don't, you know, don't think we're just like Hicks and the Sticks who don't know, you know, we're not going to just think you're cool. Anyway, that was Huggy Bear and it was, it all got a bit kind of leery and as usual with those TJ shows, you know, nothing really gets going to one in the morning and there's loads of, out of date, Orangey boom, <laughs> yeah, brisk trade, brisk trade, and out of date Orangey boom going over the counter. Um, so when Bikini Kill came on stage, it was quite a sort of tense atmosphere. And and by then, like Riot Girl had been kind of taken up by the music papers, who I don't think ever really understood it or or, or didn't understand where it came from in America. And it was too subtle and sophisticated a network to just be put through the mill of the weekly music press. There was far more to it than that. Yeah. So um, I don't know what anyone realised was how phenomenal Bikini Kill were live, and they'd obviously been playing for a long time together. And Kathleen Hanna did one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen anyone do on stage. People, you know, it was... It was lively and rowdy, and it was it was there was definitely sexism coming from the certain, by no means all or a majority, but a minority of the audience. And halfway through a song, she just lifted up her top and wrapped it around her head and held it tight as though she was a hostage. Okay. So she looked like she was being taken hostage and started singing like that. So she, you couldn't see her face, and she was singing through her t-shirt. In, into the microphone and, and she was for anyone who wanted to they could see they could see her chest and her, her underwear and it just completely changed the atmosphere of the evening people who previously had been behaving badly it's as if they'd just been thrown against the walls of the club by this gesture and um, I've never seen anyone take such authority of an audience in quite such a manner before or so powerfully. And um, the music was, they were just a phenomenal live band, Bikini Kill. And it really made me, I was, I was 23, 24, it really made me think about women in music, how they're treated, um, the male gaze, looking at women, you know, women in hands. And I'd always found that sort of, Kind of indie sex, indie sex symbols and kind of cute cuteness, very kind of elements of it, very disturbing and kind of people dressing up, dressing up in kind of junior school clothes, you know, mm. playing indie. There's something slightly peculiar about all that, and um, I thought, and. Um, yeah, that evening just had a profound effect on how I thought about the various roles that people played, men and women, boys and girls, in 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 an area of music that wasn't 
pop music and wasn't video and wasn't glossy, but still yeah. contained lots of kind of not problems, but issues to do yeah. with, yeah. with, with, with how people behave. But I mean, as well as all that, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal concert. Yeah. And the two things together were, were very, very powerful. And you don't often see the two combined. Like mm. Yeah, it's like the powerful statements from the band, like you said, on stage, but also like, you know, they're sort of, you know, a, a lot of bands in at that time would sort of get swept away by sort of like, you know, doing what photographers would tell them to do on shoots, like you mentioned, and, you know, the media sort of like, yeah, just getting brought along. But, you know, they, you know, they realised that there was that sort of like representation in the media and they called like for a blackout, didn't they? For, you know, they didn't want to do any press and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... The person in um, who who kind of who booked that tour, the very very wonderful woman called Liz Naylor, and she'd uh, she'd worked at Blast First, which is you know where where Big Black and Dinosaur Junior and Sonic Youth were rele- released. So she kind of grown up in that kind of milieu. And I asked her about that tour once, and she said, "Oh, it was absolutely brilliant. I was down the front." punching people i never got to do that with Steve Albini. <laughs> I, I suppose though that, that that's one of the sort of elements of the sort of brit poppy that's aged the least well you know the sexism you know like if you think of like any bands like garbage or echo belly or Melis or even the cardigans like an ordinary sort of brit pop band at the time um, it was all the, the the press reviews were all very much about first and foremost the 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 female singer being good looking or whatever. It was just ridiculous. I mean, while while I'm painfully aware we're three white dudes talking about yeah. this, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's definitely yeah. I mean, people on the one hand, people talk about um, gender and Britpop in terms of how you know the, a lot of the women wore wore jeans and it, it was quite uh, androgynous and there was mm. you know i think the way elastic addressed and obviously i think donna from newport had a big influence on this um jeans and dr martins that's that's a pretty tough look for for women signed to major labels which most mm. of that music was but um yeah if you look at even even you know the more interesting elements of Britpop, like if you look through a, a back issue of Select magazine now, you still see those same tropes, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so when you were in Bristol, would that have been coinciding with the explosion of bands in Newport? Like, you know, the Dolls and Dub War, Fly Screen, Novocaine? Yeah, I saw I saw 60 Foot Dolls' second ever show. Um, ah. This is only because I had it out the other day. Oh, wow. Amazing. Flyer for the gig. For the listeners, we should say I'm holding up. Oh, yeah. So it says 60 Foot Dolls formed April 93. This is their second ever gig. Influences. Marijuana and breakfast TV. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. <laughs> um, so yeah, Fly Screen with there and Dog Quarry, and a band I put out called the Flem Gods, who are from Newport. They supported the Boredoms once, and it's one of the best nights 
of really insane music I'd ever seen. But um, 60 Foot Dolls that night is a second show, and I'd only been kind of putting out music and stuff for about six months then. But And I was never particularly good at assessing whether a band had potential based on playing live. It's just I wasn't very good at it. But mm. I remember seeing them and thinking, wow, this is – this is head and shoulders above most things I see. Yeah. And they did the cover of Everyone's Got Something to Hide But Me and My Monkey. Oh, wow. That's amazing, yeah. yeah. But, uh, by the Beatles. And this is pre-Oasis yeah. and all that revival. Mm. And um, they just looked like they, they looked like they meant business. They looked like they'd been rehearsing in a pub in Pill. Uh, and they could really, really play. And Richard was very, I mean, they're all very charismatic, but Richard was very, very charismatic and looked like a young Robert De Niro and they wore interesting clothes. Um, But most of all, they could, they were really tight. And you know when a trio is really tight, they just have that thing where they boil everything down. They really, they really had that. And the amp, the PA went after I think their first or second song. Um, and they just sort of walked off the very small stage and waited for it to be sorted out. But there was no kind of, um, yeah, they had a sort of swagger in the way they did that. And there was no sense of um, needing somewhere to hide or embarrassed or, or sort of wondering how to do with the kind of failure of the PA. They just kind of acted like rock stars. It was very impressive. So obviously, like the... The scene became synonymous with that Neil Strauss quote, you know, the new Seattle. Yeah. Um, at the time, did you think that, you know, this is really bubbling away or is there a lot of sort of, you know, nostalgia looking back? You know, how impressive was it at the time? Um, well, I was in Bristol, so I wasn't there all the time. Um, there were a lot of bands around and a lot of them could play. And a lot of them, yeah, I I felt like I met quite a few people at the time who were really into like the first Soundgarden album. Mm. So not, not um, so like when I was a kid, like when I was 12 or 13, you either into the jam or you were into Whitesnake. Um, and it felt like 10 years later, people, who might have been into Iron Maiden and Whitesnake were now into Soundgarden. But there's still that kind of very post-industrial town sense of people wanting to play music that's quite heavy and quite sort of rusty. But knowing when you had a club like TJ's that if you couldn't play, people wouldn't take you seriously. Whereas I could go and see bands play in Bristol on a fairly regular basis who really couldn't play at all. Mm-hmm. But they had nice hair and Rickenbacker guitars, and that kind of <laughs> took care of everything. So, so I think there was um, there was an energy. It didn't last very long, um, and I don't think many people were especially careerist or career minded. Yeah. Um, but definitely there was an energy and. I'd say the art school had a lot to do with it in that in a way that probably doesn't get discussed and the yeah. fact TJ's was so next to the art school and there were 
people coming doing interesting degrees and I think that gets overlooked and you know there was there there were bands playing TJs who'd play there and maybe London or maybe Brighton and that would be it and you know I remember seeing quite obscure bands like God is my co-pilot and mm. if you're going to be supporting a band like that you can't you can't you can't be ordinary yeah and you can't be the kind of band that just like reads the music press and then starts a band and you know yeah i i don't mean them any disrespect at all but a band like sort of the very early suede we're never going to be very convincing in that kind of environment yeah, yeah. i find um the newport sound quite fascinating in terms i think there is elements of the sort of lo-fi and grunge elements of that was in TJ's a lot that infiltrated the music, but yeah. also um, I don't know whether you would agree with this. Like in terms of like that Newport scene, the early nineties sort of scene is it's post Thatcherism, it's post Miner Strike, it's the anger of the Dole queue, it's and also as well I think you know it's right next to the South Wales Valleys, which has always been a bedrock of heavy music and it, it, you tend to get the heavy music in more industrialized areas. So w w would you agree with all that? I, I'd agree. I'd agree with every word of that. Yeah. I think that's absolutely accurate. Um, I mean, you know, the, what happened to the valleys and to places like Newport after Thatcher, um, after Thatcherism was, was pretty, was certainly awful, but it also kind of bred a certain sort of atmosphere and a certain almost palpable ambience in mm. the streets. And um, I think it's not too much of a stretch to say the music that came came into focus then in the early 90s sort of captured that atmosphere, yeah. definitely. Um, also, I think I, you know, I think I, I don't mean to caricature it, but I think that kind of, you know, Newport was a place that was really into heavy metal, and the valleys were places that are into heavy metal, and I think a lot of people probably had elder sim siblings, yeah, who'd been in kind of heavy bands, and and and, you know, you're more likely to buy a Marshall or a Les Paul copy in the valleys or in Newport than you are likely to buy. A strat copy and a, a Fender Twin. I mean, that's yeah. that's a, a generalization, but um, I think there's something to that. I think there was a lot of heavy equipment hanging around from older siblings. Um, I think that was a part of it. Um, and around this sort of time, you begin working with uh, or for Domino Records. Um, yeah, yeah. So they set up ninety three, and you joined them around ninety six. So quite early on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. when we spoke before we started recording, you said that you didn't. It was sort of pre the days of job description and these sort of things. But what did you do in in you know for at Domino? Um. Well, for a while there was just four of us there. We all did everything. Yeah. Um, I mainly did um, the international side of things. I spoke. I don't know if I still do, but I spoke quite good French. And our biggest markets uh, were places like France and Belgium outside the UK. Okay. So I'd sort of have quite involved chats about Smog and Palace Brothers and Will Oldham and Bill Callahan on Monday morning to hungover Belgian people. 
um, which was quite a nice way to start the week. Was that, was that like a partnership with Drag City in the States? Uh, we licensed some of their material, yeah. sure. Um, I mean, the very first thing I did for Domino was to um, go with Lawrence and Jackie, the founders, to to Los Angeles to talk to Pavement to try and convince them to oh, wow. sign with us. And at the time, neither Jackie nor myself actually worked technically worked for Domino. Okay. So we were there just sort of moonlighting. Um, and that was very exciting. And we we were successful, though it took nearly a year for it to come to fruition, or certainly quite a long time. Excuse me. Um, but yes, did International, and then some of the bands I put out on my label, Planet Records in Bristol, was, um, kind of came with me. So Flying Source Attack were already signed to Domino, but Third Eye Foundation and Movie Tone were signed to Domino and a band called Hood from Leeds, who I was going to sign, who I'd made an album with in Bristol. We released on Domino. So I was the sort of A&R for, for those bands as well. Um, and I always seemed to have to write 2,000 words a day of various bits of copy as well for basically every press release every you know this is pre-internet so everything the written word was was uh it's pre 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 instagram stories as well so the written word kind of counted for quite a bit <laughs> and we didn't have much of a marketing budget especially not when you think of what guitar music was in the 90s it was mainly major labels mm. uh, they had lots of money so it always, I always found it baffling that a band like Sleeper had a kind of equivalent budget to a Bruce Springsteen album. Oh, that God. was pretty mind blowing for me. <laughs> and all we, all we had was the kind of music we had to release and our wits, really. And yeah. we kind of used humour in press releases and and general kind of um, creating creating a world out of not very much, really. Mm. Um, but and and the music we we put out wasn't expensive to record either. So we made a sort of virtue out of necessity and in comparison to record companies with big budgets out of poverty as well. But it was great fun. And um, yeah, we all kind of did everything. I never touched the press. I never did like PR or anything like that. Um, I was always quite far in the background, but um working with bands a lot and then trying to sell sell what they'd done all around the world so where, where did the idea for loops come about obviously it's a long form music oh, good, uh, oh, journal blimey. yeah uh, i don't know um i met lee at faber and he said would you like to do something and it was around the time when um when blogging had sort of taken off and there were some very interesting blogs mainly centered around someone called Mark Fisher. who sadly took his own life uh, and has, you know, as K-Punk been posthumously rediscovered and reevaluated and is very influential writer and thinker, especially in his day, but he's subsequently been, um, as is often the case, I think it takes a, a, another micro generation to really understand 
someone's value. But his blog, K-Punk, he would write about things like The Fall in a way that hadn't really seen a band like The Fall written about ever or, you know, I'm sure they were written about interestingly in the late 70s, but I hadn't. He wrote about The Fall and Arthur Machen and that seemed very interesting. And my friend Owen Hatherley wrote about architecture, but he'd, he'd write about the architecture of Sheffield and its influence on pulp. So, and uh, Anne Wynne Crawford would write, she was Australian and she'd write fairly negatively about people that we tend to deify who are Antipodean, like Nick Cave. So I think we've, we're very inspired by that and thought maybe we could put some of those, that style of writing in, in print. But um, it was interesting, the person, uh, one of the people involved a few years later in the Pitchfork review said, oh, we're going to do that now. Um, but we've, we've, our budget's probably bigger. Um, <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, no, please, you know, go. If you're going to do it anyway. You don't, you know, it's nothing to do with me. But um, I noted that didn't last very long either. So I think this, <laughs> it's, it's something that a few people have tried. And I, I just think they kind of, um, I, mean, I don't really read much about music these days, but um is it Maggot Brain that's a new publication, I think, that's to do with Third Man Records? Oh, I don't know. Oh, right. I've heard that. <laughs> I think that's that's doing – I mean, I think it's mainly available in America, but that's – Okay. But, I mean, the original inspiration for Loops was Grand Royal, the Beastie Boys fans. Oh, uh, yeah. And wanted it to be kind of almost like Domino versus Faber and Faber and a kind of yeah. – there to be quite a lot of humour. And, um, yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> so I think you were with um, you were with Domino for about fifteen years, was it? So with the last, last, yeah, I can't, yeah, yeah, I, can't, I mean, through various degrees of formality, but yeah, yeah. So would the last few years have coincided with the sort of indie sort of revival with you know, um, yeah, so Art Monkeys and Franz Ferdinand and stuff like that? Yeah, exactly. So I moved back to Wales in two thousand and one, two. Um, moved to mid Wales where I still live. Um, and not long after that, um, Franz Ferdinand, then the Arctic Monkeys both got quite successful and that enabled uh, us to start reissuing music in earnest. And you know, people who run record labels, many of them still retain that kind of Original, in, original impulse they had in their youth of wanting to buy buy cool records, but when you're running a label and you've got some money, you can actually acquire cool records, yeah. acquire acquire cool catalogue. And um, yeah, Lawrence from from Domino, who's still one of my best friends, is um, we we would talk like before we even really worked with each other. We talk about things like. Kurt Cobain liking the raincoats and young marble giants. And um, we're very influenced by that kind of re-evaluation of that music that seemed to come from Kurt. And I think it was Steve in Mudhoney was was very much the kind of tastemaker in that world as well. So we, yeah, we'd, we'd often talked about wanting to reissue 
music and then then the success of those bands gave us the chance to do that so went on a kind of five six seven year buying buying spree basically. <laughs> um and i was very proud to to reissue colossal youth by young marble giants also reissued mung by super furry animals a few years later so yeah. had a hand in uh the canonization of certain certain key Welsh musical texts. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Um, it was great fun. Yeah, having sort of taken a bit of a backseat from the front line of music, it was great fun just working with people who are at different stages in their lives and in their careers and often working with people who didn't even consider themselves having a career, you know, just people who'd made music. It was still a place where quite a lot of romanticism and idealism, but also uh, realism as well. So I, I worked in a record shop that sold new music, but also had a huge secondhand section. And that had a huge influence on me, just seeing how people would come in and they, on a Monday, maybe buy a new release, but they'd buy something old and battered as well. Yeah. And I always thought the two things should coexist. Yeah. And, also, I saw how marketing, unless you at the time you were the Virgin Megastore or R Price, are you old enough to remember either of those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you realise that those places could shift X number of CDs on a Monday, but I was mm. in an environment that barely took CDs seriously and yeah. still. Wanted to sell vinyl and, um, yeah, it was a great education in, in, in what sort of tastes people have yeah. and that new and old music combined together tended to, I thought, bring out a very sort of broad, small C, small C Catholic understanding of what music could be in people yeah. rather than it be about trying to shift something into the charts on a Monday morning. And um, those experiences inspired Original Rockers. Is that right, your second book? Yeah, that's my second book, Original Rockers, yeah. My first book was How Soon Is Now, Yeah, which was very much a case of writing what you know. Uh, it's a history of independent music. And um, I used the word independent deliberately rather than indie because by then, when it was published, I think Top Man had a, an indie trousers <laughs> range um but also i was really aware that um indie had become something very different to what mm. i had grown up thinking it was and it was a good opportunity to kind of not only look at the etymology of independent to indie but to, to try and put that indie explosion of the early noughts into the context of what had come before yeah. um yeah, that that was my first book, and um, it it did very well, which I was slightly surprised by. Um, but I was very lucky because I'd worked at Domino. It kind of opened doors to me that maybe might not have been open to people who hadn't been quite so embedded within the industry. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not assuming that, but I, I think that was the case. And um, yeah, that did well, and then that allowed me to I could kind of, I wouldn't want to say I could more or less do what I wanted afterwards. It certainly wasn't the case, but I could, I 
I was in a position of relative um, buoyancy after that. So I wanted to write a sort of very strange book about a record shop, but to try and write about music, sort of not well-known music that tends to be, tends to be sort of discussed in the more academic elements of music discourse and I wanted to kind of put some quite difficult avant-garde music in a sort of enjoyable stupid at times stupid context because you know I I genuinely had a laugh selling Stockhausen records and Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to kind of show the human connection to music and music that's perhaps less valued by certain functional gradations of what means success. Mm. And and also I wanted to kind of evoke a certain time like Bristol in the early nineties when it's you know, it was in the middle of a recession when I started working there, but it was also incredibly sort of rich, creatively wealthy place. And the idea that um, you could have a shop right in the middle of town in what was sort of prime real estate, prime mm. shopping, high-end shopping, the top of Park Street, and have a have a shop there that basically it, well, it never took credit, it never took, it never had a card machine ever. Um, it was a cash business, and on a bad day, sort of ran on hostility and antagonism towards the people. That would, I mean, I, I, I don't like that kind of stupid record shop um, arrogance. Um, and I, I, I tried to kind of, um, I didn't, I didn't want to kind of deify that behavior at all. Mm. Sort of, um, you know, it's, it, it's silly, but, um, there were some very strange things that happened in that shop. The police thought it was an LSD factory and raided <laughs> to the full, full rock squad uh, raid. And the owner who, to this day, having met, you know, amazing musicians, amazing record company people, to this day is the one person I've met who knows more about music than anyone else I've ever met. Yeah. He... Um, he got kidnapped one day while we were all there by a reggae promoter. Oh um, my god! And uh, yeah, I just, I just, just we opened up a box of uh, import reggae, twelve inches from Jamaica, and opened it and picked a record out of the box, and it contained five hundred quid in used notes, which at the time was quite a lot of money. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. It's funny, I've got a friend uh, who lives in Brooklyn, Jesse Jarno, who works for Grateful Dead. And he said a few years ago he was in a kind of mom and pop store in Brooklyn and bought a record and he took it home. And he said, uh, unbeknownst to him, there was six months worth of rent there and used bills as well. So you know, he's, he's, he's the only other person I know who's had that experience. Um, but yeah, there was there was a lot of interesting there were a lot of interesting stories behind the shop. 
uh, just just in terms of the comedy and the madness. But there was also, I wanted to record in our increasingly digital age what a physical space could mean. And it did, didn't just mean retail. It meant knowledge, uh, emotional connections to music, the idea of a sort of safe space, asylum almost for people. And this is in an age where people could get by with a bit of cash in hand and the dole and, you know, you could live cheaply in the centre of a very nice city and a place like that attracted people with time on their hands and wanted to kind of put, put that sense of time in a context where time, the value of the time wasn't just a monetary value. Yeah, yeah. I hope I hope that's not getting too <laughs> too no, far out there. No. That, that was that. That's what I wanted to do with with that book. Yeah. And um, your next book was quite different again uh, in 2019. So uh, named after Ralph Vaughan Williams's beloved classical piece, uh, "The Lark Ascending," uh, which examined the relationship between music and the British landscape. Yeah, yeah. One day it will be revealed that there's a thread running through all these books. Yeah. Um, but I don't know what they are yet. But, when, um, you, when you started talking about the physical space of the record store, that's what, yeah, that was my sort of segue into the into that next album and how, you know, I guess it's kind of the reverse of that, how that physical space in terms of like the, the landscape and, you know, how that affects, you know, um, musical movements and those sort of things. And even like thinking about... Um, was it Kate LeBon went up to um, the Lake District to do? Yes. Yeah, reward, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then you know, to, for, like furniture design, and you know, be inspired by that, you know, that landscape and and those sort of things. So I think it's yeah, it's definitely a, a, a theme. No, you're absolutely right, James. I sort of went very, 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 very inwards <laughs> with one book, and then then I wanted to go very, very outwards. Mm. Um, I guess that that book. Uh, so the lark ascending is a piece of music usually there or thereabouts on the classic FM favourite piece of music of all time there are people who think it's sort of pentatonic rubbish I find it intensely moving and I um, for someone who spent a lot of time in occasionally quite obscure parts of music I, I really I really like liking popular things Mm. You know, I'm not a, a snob, but I, whatever I said about Oasis earlier, I just didn't feel I really do. But I may well have been wrong as well. But um, The Lark Ascending, I do think it's a very powerful piece of music and it elicits a very kind of deep connection with people. It's played at funerals a lot. And I think it evokes this idea of the British landscape. Yeah. I mean, the cliche would be the green and pleasant land, but it evokes some feeling that kind of goes beyond um, what many other, beyond land of hope and glory or beyond um, Jerusalem. It's it's a richer, deeper connection. And in the middle section, there's an animated section where the lark is now, has now ascended and is looking down on the land below. It speeds up. And what's happening below is obviously indeterminate and left to our imaginations, but it sounds like, and Vaughan Williams uses folk song in much of what he does, but it sounds like it could be 
a wedding or a May Day celebration or some sort of the use of folk music suggests uh, regular people could be there and it's people who've congregated in the landscape to enjoy themselves. And the book basically traced people congregating in the landscape through the 20th century and ended up sort of making the argument that unless you're a landowner yourself, this was something that became almost impossible to do by the time you get to the Stonehenge Free Festivals and the Battle of the Beanfield and the Convoy and the um, yeah, appalling humiliation and vilification of people who wanted to basically enjoy the landscape. And, you know, we all, I worked there, I was a you know, director of the stage there for many years. We all love Green Man, but uh, most people have to buy a ticket to go to Green Man to have that feeling and I should say, in the interests of fairness, that Green Man's, although still not cheap, not as expensive as other similar things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not a Delahunt Park, no. <laughs> no, no. Um, but, yeah, so, so the book was basically saying music informs a lot of our identity and a lot of our relationship to the landscape, but that relationship in practice to actually go and experience the countryside and experience the pastoral is a really complicated and difficult thing to do unless you're a landowner. And um, I think it was published sort of, not the height of it, but around that kind of nature writing boom. And partly I wanted to get to grips with the fact that you know, the founders of the Soil Association were people who had advised Oswald Mosley in the 30s. Right. And um, there was a kind of, um, there's a side to nature that is, and the management of certain types of farming practices, I'm not talking about today, but in the 30s that was inspired by eugenics and things like that. And it's, so there's a there's a an element to, you can use, you can trace our, our relationship to the landscape through music, through, through the changes we went through as a society. So in the middle of the Second World War, Labour had a policy of land nationalisation, which may be why farmers will never vote Labour, you'd have to ask farmers. <laughs> 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 I don't think the two unrelated, but um, especially that you know, one that John Se- Prescott walloped as well, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, after the Second World War, um, subsidies came in, and um, suddenly land and farming had value that was sort of guaranteed. And a piece of music I used to illustrate that is um, "Under Milk Wood" by Stan Tracy, the brilliant jazz rendering of that, and how. Um, under Mitwood, the radio play, it was a radio play and it was commissioned for the light, for the third programme not long after the Second World War and the Second World War was the radio was the means by which the war was understood by most people in this country. Yeah. And the BBC commissioned this pastoral work where ordinary people become deified and, you know, in the pastoral everyone has a, a resonance and... Uh, 
a sense of magic and John Thomas gave the baker the candles over you know all the people Richard Burton rattles off in the opening uh, he, he he made that he deified them uh, which is a, a wonderful thing to do in a post-war society and at exactly the same time agriculture had been subsidized for the first time so the book ended up being a kind of in a way a kind of examination of uh, then sadly you know within 10 years the the state which had suddenly got involved in land started saying actually talk to our friends who run ICI they'll provide you with some dynamite to start blowing up all the hedges <laughs> and um, then I wrote quite a lot about the back to the land movement and uh, used a Donovan record a gift from a flower to a garden to illustrate that impulse uh, Donovan was the first of that generation to get it together in the countryside or among mm. the first but he bought an island and obviously you probably both know the Vashti Bunyan story about going to that island and um, yeah it, it's funnily enough writing that chapter about John Seymour in Pembrokeshire did did get me thinking about Brittlewood relics yeah, which moves us on nicely to 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 Britterex. But I just want to were you influenced um, by the the move back to rural Mid Wales? Um, I did. I do remember being in Mid Wales one New Year's Eve and thinking, "Bloody hell, it's cheap to live here." <laughs> um, and I was living in London at the time, and I'd just been mugged. Nice. And uh, uh, and I lived in what is now a shishi part of... I lived in Dalston, but at Dalston at the turn of the century was... I lived behind the pub, the Intrepid Fox, where they kept the gold bullion from the Brinks match. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, it was easy to feel like a tourist. Yeah. Um, so I, but basically, I just wanted to move back to Wales. Um, my mother's side of the family's from Carmarthenshire, from rural, uh, semi-rural Wales, and um, yeah, I was just just approaching thirty, and I just really wanted to move back to Wales, basically. Yeah. And um, I didn't feel like moving back to Newport, Cardiff, was far enough away from for where I wanted to go, and I basically worked out how long it would take to get to London or Bristol from Abergavenny train station. And I thought, right, someone like me, my age, where would they be able to handle a drive to Abergavenny? How long would they? Have? So I thought half an hour. Okay. So right, I'll go 45 minutes away. <laughs> <laughs> that was, I don't understand this. Yeah. That, I mean, I don't understand misanthropic, but that was my, evaluation yeah. yeah i just thought how can i how can i could i cope with it taking nearly an hour to get to abergavenny or 40 minutes and i thought yeah i can yeah so brittle relics um history of wales 1962 to 1997 obviously not arbitrary dates you know 1962 coincides with um you know saunders lewis's famous um you know radio lecture uh tangaradiaith uh, the fate of the language, um, which um, many people have said was the, and you, you reference it in the book, the catalyst for Camdaitha, Siraith, Kamraig, and then, you know, 1997, devolution. Um, 
what was the um what was what was the inspiration behind you know this book because it's 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 not a um an easy undertaking i've got the book in front of me it's a it's a big book you've said you know you know it's um you know that it could have been longer it could have yeah and you, um, you did an oral history as well <laughs> so having to collate all of those um you know those 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 viewpoints yeah well partly partly i feel within wales we haven't really understood this era so just just to speak in very broad terms i've got friends with a welsh medium education who knew all about Truerin and Espedrach and things like that. And then I know people who had an English medium education who didn't have a clue about any of it. And I knew I wanted to finish with devolution because I felt, bear in mind this was commissioned prior to the pandemic and prior to our own response within Wales yeah. to dealing with a crisis, which I think has strengthened our understanding of devolution. 100%. Uh, absolutely. And I think for many people in Wales, it was the first time they really understood yeah. what the Senate yeah. was capable of. And I think last year's election results proved that people thought it was a good thing. Yeah. Um, you don't have to agree with the re- election, but I think, think it's indisputable that played a big those part, results yeah. dem- demonstrate the, yeah. Um, but I, 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 I wanted to examine our relationship to devolution because it was such a narrow vote in favour. Yeah. And um, I think many of us prior to the pandemic in Wales have engaged with the Assembly as it was and its sort of myriad agencies with a sense of perhaps not frustration because I've always been for it, but a sense that there's a kind of lethargy or a sort of institutional malaise that stops things from happening at work in the institution. And, you know, we have, you know, we were the first country to put sustainability into our national constitution we have the future generations act which a great deal is made of but we are seven years into that future now yeah that was passed in 2015 yeah and we still have one in three children in wales in poverty so we're in that future you know i worry about a kind of ted ted lecture element to that where we're just permanently in this sort of lofty version of the future rather than dealing with our problems anyway that is a rather um, soapbox um, iconoclastic way of trying to say that um, I really wanted to get to grips with why the vote had been so narrow and what really struck me was that places that voted for it was obviously Carmarthenshire, Evrokenberg and Gwynfield yeah. Evans's homeland but also the Valleys voted for devolution and you have two very different one more Anglophone, one Cymraeg versions of a Welsh identity yeah. in those two communities. And they both agreed on something. Yeah. And prior to that, you can't really point to... Me- you can, but the convention was that those two parts of Wales didn't communicate 
well with each other or perhaps understand each other. And within a country of only 3 million people, which is Greater Manchester, yeah, uh, that seemed something that really needed to be explored and examined. And I suppose I knew I'd start with the Saunders-Lewis speech because I wanted to tell the, or a version of the history of the Cymraeg Renaissance in English. Yes, Because obviously yeah. most of the people I spoke to have written memoirs and autobiographies, but I feel like, I felt like I wanted those stories to be understood, not just within Wales by English people, but people anywhere. Yeah. You know, I knew Faber would publish this book and I thought there's an opportunity to have those stories told to as wide an audience as possible. Um, but uh, I knew I'd start with the Saunders-Lewis speech. I knew I'd finish with devolution. So in the middle of that timeline, 62 to 97, is, is the mid-80s, which obviously in Wales, totemically, is the 84-85 miners' strike. Yeah. But just go, going a year, year or two before that, 1982-1983, the question I wanted to answer was, what did a, a teenager or a, at that time, what did she feel she had in common with? What did a teenager in, in um, Bethesda have in common with a teenager in Cambran. Um, I think sport, we'd all agree, was probably something that bound people. Nothing like today, I don't think, no. particularly football. Um, but, you know, we, we're always good at athletics in that era in Wales. Um, but not music at that point. No. You know, that came later. And so really kind of going either side of that date, trying to answer that question was, was what I felt was the purpose of the book, uh, one of the purposes of the book. But um, I also wanted to write a history that showed that we put ourselves through hell, what we did to ourselves long before deindustrialization and Thatcherism. We, we stupidly, argued with ourselves yeah. in a very unproductive way. Yeah. And I wanted someone under the age of 35 or maybe even a bit younger, if they were to read it, to say, let's never do that again. Yeah. You know, literally together stronger. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Richard, honestly, this book has come at a perfect time for me. Um, I've, um, I've struggled with my Welsh identity over years. I've only sort of ever felt Welsh when I've left Wales. Right. Um, you know, and I think that's a lot to do with the language. And I know that's not a, you know, a sort of modern thing to say. But, you know, I, I moved to moved to Southampton for university and had a Welsh flag in my room and everything was Welsh. So I wanted to prove who I was, you know, in that way. That was kind of a little bit after sort of cool Cymru. So it felt like, you know, you know, that people cared and loved us, you know, sort of thing, you know, uh, you know. Um, and then, yeah, moved to London for work, you know, 2010. Um for a couple of years and, and again sort of like that passion came out but ended up sending my daughter to to welsh medium uh education school like three or four years ago then and you know as part of that it was right i want to i want to be able to help her and support her so 
tried to learn Welsh again and, you know, th- with the fear of the trade glad and um, how many times you can say yes or no in different ways without understanding what's going on. <laughs> but yeah, but you know, that, that history that I feel now is stolen from me in some way, like you said, you know, you're, you're talking, you know, to an English language Wales, um, but also the wider world and, and understanding what's going on. And, you know, I think that sort of, um, you know, embracing of the Welsh language for me over the last few years is, as, as you know, made me want to learn more and want to understand more. And, you know, with all of the fights and the battles that, you know, Cymdeithus Yaith um, have gone through and all of the language activists and all of the changes around, like, direct action to put peaceful action and, and these sort of things, you know. And and I think, um, you know, James Dean Bradfield, um, in your book towards the end, sort of, like, um, encapsulates it perfectly by saying, you know, um, the sort of bilingual road signs that was f- were fought for by Welsh language speaking, then sort of like opened that up to him because he felt like he couldn't, you know, uh, feel welcome at the Eistedd Vodai and, and these sort of things. But, you know, the things that Welsh language people were fighting for then give him the sort of like opportunity to do it. And yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a perfect, it's a perfect book, but you know how how important do you think um, language is to Welsh identity? Because I know it's a it's a it's a it's a like a, a a difficult topic. Well, I I um I'm not in the book very much, which I you know I I have written personal books in the past. So I didn't just I just wanted to get out of the way with this book. Um, uh, but I grew up um, in a household where Welsh was spoken. But as I say in the introduction, the only other person I knew in Newport at the time who lived in a in a Welsh-speaking house lived opposite us, and he took over an hour round trip yeah. every day to read Velin to get a Welsh medium education. Um, uh, going back to the cathedral in Newport, uh, the dean at one point um, was bilingual, and he'd occasionally give. Uh, yeah, it was a church in Wales Cathedral, and he'd he'd occasionally read some part of the um, the service out in Cymraeg, and there'd be sharp intakes of breath and tut tuts, and so yeah, I, I grew up somewhere that often didn't really think it was in Wales. Yeah, you know, it thought it was in Monmouthshire, or it thought it was Newport Mon, or it wasn't really Wales. But I mean, it's in Wales. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but the language was just this thing that was met with real hostility. And I think it was due to fear, just outright fear. And you know, South Wales, Anglophone Wales, its population was often derived from its relationship, or was largely derived from its relationship to industry. Yeah. And that industry was manpower intensive and it needed a workforce. So I'm sure we all three of us know people who've got grandparents, even maybe parents, certainly great grandparents who are Scottish or Northumbria or from Kent or, you know, Wales was a place of inward migration during its industrial heyday. So if you're in, you know, Northwest Wales, if you're in 
if you're in um, if you're on the clean peninsula and your family have been farming there all your life and you're yeah, I very occasionally write my email Richard App Howell, Richard Howell App Edgar, um, but mainly to amuse myself when I'm <laughs> writing it to my uh, publisher, just to kind of keep them amused as well. But if you if you have that kind of name and you speak Welsh and you have family who've been high up in the Eisteddfod, uh, there's a sense of Welsh identity that's completely and and um, I think this is something that should be celebrated, but it's predicated on the language and the preservation and the survival of the language. And thank God those people were there. Yeah. Did it. But I think, I think it it happened, and I wouldn't say it happened deliberately. Perhaps it did in some cases, but it didn't happen. Yeah. So the point I'm trying to make is there was a cost to that, which was to people who weren't part of that, of Okumraig. Um, almost submersion in the language as a way of life. For people who 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 weren't part of that, it was alienating. Yeah. And during the period I write about, Wales suffered a great deal. A lot of places suffered uh, deindustrialization in the Midlands and the north of England and in Scotland and in other parts of England. It wasn't something that Wales went through on its own, but it is worth remembering in the early 80s, the Welsh office prepared a document for the Home Office saying they were worried that the early 80s recession was having such a devastating effect on Wales, they worried about conditions that would return to the Great Depression. And in 1980, in Shotton, six and a half thousand people lost their jobs in an afternoon in the steelworks. It was the greatest mass redundancy in Western Europe at the time. So we were suffering. And when people suffer, they turn in on themselves yeah. and they lose their confidence. And I think the language became part of that loss of confidence and part of that suffering and part of that, I would want to say self-hatred, but that self, that loss of self-worth. Mm. And if you couldn't speak the language, well, here's another thing that you don't understand that's going on. Why are these people so obsessed about this language? It's nothing to do with me. I watch Points West on HTV West or, you know, I don't even, my my TV transmitter faces to Bristol, not to Cardiff. Um, so I think the language, if, if you're dealing with something that's been fought for out of incredible passion and commitment, you're going to come up against people who are quite fervent in what they believe. And for some people in Wales, that fervour was interpreted as nationalism, uh, erroneously often, and that alienated people. And also, you know, I think within Anglophone South Wales, where the power was uh, in in a very sort of old-fashioned union-centric version of labourism, um, I don't think enough of those people took the Welsh language seriously at all. And I think... That was a huge mistake. And partly I think that was because after Aberfan, you know, Plaid Cymru started doing well in South Wales and coming quite close in by-elections and vote increase went up and up. And I think there were people within the Labour Party who were intimidated by the language and and the potential Plaid Cymru showed electorally. And there's an argument someone makes in the book that they could have, 
Clyde could have, after the miners' strike, made inroads into post-industrial Wales in the way the SNP did in Scotland and become more of a pan-Wales party. Um, I think it's behaving like a pan-Wales party in this power-sharing agreement. Yeah. Now, but but it, but the language, I think, you know, VC Van says in the book, super furry animals were the band that made people feel that the language belonged to them. Yeah. It didn't matter whether you could speak it or not. It didn't matter if you could just say Diane or Dichra, whatever, if that's if it stopped there. This is for all, for everyone. And uh, I, th- I, I believe that. And, I, and I'm sure we've all seen it in action as well. Um, but certainly I felt that the singing of the anthem at the rugby, and we're so used to that camera trying to find the person who's pumping their yeah. heart and close to tears. And, then, you know, the moment there's glad, well, glad's coming there. Glad, glad's coming. Let's find, find the person with the tears. Let's, in the find, let's find the person having an emotional break. <laughs> um, I mean, I, 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 I felt starting writing this book that that is a very, um, that, that register of Welsh identity, if register is the right word, but, or that, that, um, that version of a Welshness is now being seen by millions of people of television, yeah. and it's one we can all identify with. And I never deny. I've I, God knows I've burst into tears singing the anthem at the rugby, you know. Um, and I would never deny people the emotional cadence of that. But I decided at the start that that wasn't enough. That we've got to go beyond that to work out who we are. Yeah, and that's what I was trying to do. And, and there's a bit in there with you talk of that the the anthem as well, and I think um, Rhys Moyne mentions it in uh, the podcast we did with him. But there's a bit that Griff Rhys talks about and how the anthem was played at the end of gigs and that sort of thing. And it was almost like the the, the Welsh language speakers sort of protested against that by sitting down and not wanting to to do that, and then getting thrown out of places like Club Bach and stuff like that as a as a form of protest. But you know, I think like you know, you start with Tungadjaith as we mentioned, and there's a line in there that talks about language is more important than self-government. You know, and that was laughed at at the time. And you know, I, I remember growing up, and you know, you know, Wales was class, or Welsh was classed as a modern foreign language, the same way you know French, yeah. French and German was, which is which is which is which is crazy. But um, uh, yeah, just wanted to also talk about um, the link between, I guess. Welsh language music, particularly, um, um, and 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 protest as well, because you you know you you start talking, you know, obviously, um, you know, do um, you know, um, yeah. you know, straight away, and 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 you know, with Hugh Jones is is song on sign, I think it's sign number one actually, and and it's her first release, first yeah. release, yeah, and you know, and yeah. and and last week, you know, Griff Reese released the double A side, people are pissed. Um, you know, uh, you know, as as a reaction to what's going on, you know, politically, you know, it, it what how important is music from a, you know, a, a protest and and actually sort of driving sort of societal and, and political change within in Wales. It feels as though, you know, I know there's other instances of it, but it feels as though it's sort of, you know, very very tied to to, to Welsh identity and, and politics. Sure. Well. You know, taking the sort of renaissance of Cymraeg in, in in two generations, the first generation 
some like David Ewan, you know, obviously was involved in releasing yeah. Dur, was a politician and a folk singer. So I think by default, yeah. um, you know, he's a protest singer. You know? mm. um, and his songs were were protest songs, were very, very powerful ones. And so the context he was operating in was he was singing about the condition of Wales at the time. And the condition of Wales was such that you, to sing about it, you'd be engaging with it to the point where you'd be campaigning for change. And I know that um, one person I wish I'd, I tried to speak to uh, the only person I couldn't get hold of actually was Gadite Jarman because I think yeah. he's a, an interesting link between these generations and um, it would it would have been interesting to, to speak to him about it. But um, the Kadaisas, particularly as 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 we get to the eighties, there's so much energy that I think has been found in the movement that there's there's a sort of sense that everything's possible. Yeah, and that included promoting music. So I speak to many people in the book who were involved in Kandaisas and they'd say we'd have a rally and then a concert in yeah. the evening. And then someone like David David R. Edwards and Three Smoyne, Lana and that bloogie, I mean they they both played benefits for Kandaisas. Yeah. But both in their music interrogated the motive of Kandaithias and didn't want to give it a free pass just because they were singing in Cymraeg. Yeah. And David Wrench makes the point really well in the book where he says, hearing that bloogie, he, he heard someone who was saying that the, Welsh la- the, the conservatism of the Welsh language is, is too readily accepted. And it needs interrogating, and the the sort of heart playing um, sentimentality of the language is is not good enough for for what Wales is going through at the moment. So, so there's that, and then you know, obviously, people like Griff and um, Dav in Super Furry Animals, they they kind of grew up in in this world in for Coffee Power, but. Yeah. Um, I think if your first gigs are put our benefit gigs or our rallies, you're going to be making political music, and I, you've probably seen it too. The first time Superfair Animals play on Espedrec on a television show, it's their first ever live performance on TV. Griff goes into a tirade about the fact that it's sponsored by a privatised yes, that's right, yeah. made. <laughs> <laughs> privatized rail company yeah. and has a has a go at one of the guests who's expressed you know hitherto expressed some pretty dodgy political views so you know they were coming from from that place so it's inherently political but i'd also say in tandem with that and that energy i'd say motown junk is a is a political song yeah yeah absolutely yeah. but you, um, you you talk about um you know the, I guess, in the wake of the Aberfan disaster, and you know the the greening of the valleys and the the WGA being set up for that. You know, any potential sort of economic contraction as a result of deindustrialization, and you've got like the 
the experiences of people like Richard Parfit, Nicky Wire, Patrick Jones, you know, as a result of, you know, what they're seeing locally and, you know, James's experiences of food bank type situations outside his school and, 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 and these sort of things that, yeah, it's, it's hard not to um, think about those experiences and, and how it's shaping an artistic expression across across the broad uh, uh, spectrum that, you know, Neil mentioned around, you know, how the industrial um, notion of, of what was going on within Newport and the docks area sort of shaped that scene as well. It's, it is hard to, to separate that, you know, experience from from artistic expression and, um, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, the, it, if those are the economic conditions you're living in, um, I think I think I don't want to paraphrase him for lots of reasons, um, but I think Nick Nick Nicky Wire sort of said once something along the lines of, you know, we 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 don't do escapism very well in Wales. You know, we we yeah. we we keep things quite real. Um, obviously, I'm generalising, but. Yeah, I think yeah, Motown junk just sort of stop your brain thinking for one to tell you know the lyrics. It's just like don't kid yourself, you know, and don't uh, don't fall for this bit of mass consumption, you know, that everything's going to be okay. Yeah, and um, there's there's an element of kind of I I I won't deny. I'm not going to use music to deny my reality. And I think you hear that in those early, and you know, you hear it in Happy Shopper. Yeah. In the lyrics of Happy Shopper. Yeah. And you hear it in, you certainly hear it in the lyrics, the Camarag lyrics of that bluggy as well. So there's this sort of holding up a mirror to Wales in, in both Angl- in the Anglophone music and in the Camarag music. And it's holding up a mirror that, um, not much other Welsh culture was engaged in it. I mean, obviously, things like Twin Town did come along and do that very soon after, but there was still, you know, as much as Welsh culture in the 80s kind of got through on a national level, it was still the sort of figure of the Welsh, the Welsh man usually being a figure of fun, a convivial, often borderline drunk, you know, hail fellow, well met, sort of Windsor Davis character. Yeah. And um, yeah, obviously there's other things like this, the success of the alarm and, you know, I don't like, you know, they wrote some really good songs and they're really successful and they're a really big commercial band. And so, you know, I, they don't feature in my book because I don't, you know, their success wasn't predicated of the things we've been discussing. They signed to a big label and had a big label career. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, in terms of what was being produced by people um, several rungs further down the ladder than that, I think there's a sort of engagement with the with what was going on in Welsh society that listening back now, you, you can hear there's a sort of um, understanding that things weren't good and that music was a way of expressing it. 
Talking, uh, going back to what you were saying about Motown junk with, um, you know, stops your brain thinking in 168 seconds and um, the sort of like there's no escapism. That got me thinking of, obviously, Nicky Y is a big fan of R.S. Thomas, who, you know, it's his Welsh landscape that inspired the title. Um, there's no present in Wales and no future. There's only the past, brittle with relics. Talk us through the, the title then, because it, it's, it's very sort of prescient, really. Yeah, um, I mean, when I was like, so I was I was fourteen when the minor strike started, and thinking back of the valleys in South Wales after the minor strike, I felt like I lived among relics. You know, mm. um, I, I lived in a place full of relics. But also writing about the history of the Rokham Ride in rural Wales, and particularly things like Mebion Glendur or the urge to explore rural Wales. And there's some amazing people in the book, like Carl, Carl Close, yes. Carl Ewan Close. He, he moved back to northwest Wales and he literally took on two relics and turned them into. Nant, you know, the centre for the Welsh language. And another um, was a a community centre. He literally went into relics and built up a new sense of community and sense of purpose in these places. So I feel that in the era I cover, there were a lot of relics in Wales. And then, you know, very sadly, I think... um, and I found this very difficult to, to write about and organise. I feel that post-industrial Wales, there were some of the relics were people because of what they'd suffered. Mm. And um, there's a very moving um, section when someone who had the... Richard Frame, who had the um, homeless hostel above TJ's for many years, said once the Care and the Community Act came in, he had to, some of the people who'd been in his care and he'd previous, previously been at St. Caddick's at the asylum, uh, he had to discharge them back into the community and, and he was talking about, you know, big, strong steel workers who ended up taking their own lives and throwing themselves into the river in Newport. And there was a sense that the kind of switching off an industry in Wales happened so quickly and so brutally that the so some of the people that experienced that and were unlucky became, you know, a shell of their former selves as well. So there's all that, but I also felt that the brittleness was in our relationship with each other and that that tension between the language, uh, the places that spoke it, the places that didn't, that, that our understanding of what being Welsh was and our understanding of, what being Welsh was in a different part of Wales was mm. brittle. Yeah. Um, and it's also just one of my favourite poems. And sometimes just, I just thought, yeah, that's, that seems to sum up this era we're in of um, communities in trouble. Yeah. And you, you, you talk about that as well, you know, about, you mentioned earlier about the inward migration and, you know, uh, there's a there's a again. Sorry, I'm paraphrasing myself, but there's a bit in there that talks about you know the the 
people who have the the means and the funds, you know, and to embrace the sort of good life and, you know, coming in and, you know, that, that, that hasn't gone away. And, you know, we, we're seeing that now with like second housing, you know, crisis and, you know, these sort of things and, and, and how that is, you know, you know, damaging the language and, and culture and stuff like that. It's, it's not, it's not going away. No, I mean, um, Connor Davers, who was technically the first Green MP in Britain because he was a ply Green MP, uh, no disrespect meant to Caroline Lucas. It's, yeah. not, a, it's not a race, you know, <laughs> the first Green MP. But um, he ended up, I think, on the board of CAT, the Centre of Alternative Technology in Mahantlath. But um, he says in the book, you know, we are, we are lucky that we've become a a place where environmentalism has flourished and been developed in Wales and is embedded in communities to an extent that it may not be quite so embedded in, in other parts of Britain. And it's something we take increasingly seriously. And, you know, the debate about Wales's future seems to be predicated on, on natural resources. Yeah. But he says, you know, the people who come and, and did things like set up cat tend to be well, well healed English people. And there is, Maybe they're not all English. I don't mean to be um, racist in any way, but uh, the um, the sense that people with means come and slightly tell us how to live, yeah, or tell us what's good for us, and goodness me, that continues. And I've lived through successive uh, schemes and projects, you know, some of which have come to fruition, some of which haven't which are basically based on people thinking it's cheap to move to rural Wales and to to do something. And there is a degree, in my experience anyway, of of the natives being told what's good for them. Um, that's by no means the only example of, of environmentalism thriving in Wales. And I wouldn't want for a second to diminish all the brilliant communities in Wales that, uh, uh, you know, enact environmentalism on their own by their own wits but certainly um writing about maybe on glendur and the second home issue uh each conversation i had with the people involved said of course i'm not sure we're any better off today no um i i spoke to the mp ben lake uh, Plaid Company MP, who's an incredibly impressive person, I would say, as was Carlos Davis, as was some Labour politician suspect. <laughs> it wasn't the case that the only impressive politicians I spoke to were Plaid people, but Ben Ben was a, a very, very eloquent, and is a very eloquent and, and um, very bright person. And he he was saying, I mean, his father and I think grandfather were both. CID and investigated Mebdongyandur and he I think did some work at university a, a thesis or a dissertation on it as well and now as an MP he says at his Friday surgery in Kajdigion he meets constituents who just have the sa- exact same complaint that people had in the 80s uh, where I'm meant to live he said these are people on by the local average, good salaries, you know, a, a working household, two people in work, in full-time employment. And they just said, please explain what I meant to do. Yeah. And 
that sense of the circle. So I mean, two, two, two brilliant things happened in the pandemic. One was we took control of our own destiny, literally in the case of public health. And I think we've derived a great deal of confidence from it, national confidence and a great sense of who we are and it being something that we, you know, we can feel like, we, you know, our test and trace was run by the local councils, not by mates, you know, mm. that we'd met in the pub, as it as was the case, it transpires in, in England. And I think, you know, in Wales, there's enough within the constitution and the, the ability of what this the Senate is capable of doing, that we feel like we live in the last dregs of a social democracy at times in Wales. But there are other times when we don't, and that is when the property market and the issue of second homes comes into play. And as well as that enthusiasm for how we handle the pandemic, obviously people died during the pandemic, so it wasn't all good, but that sense of, of being in control of our own destiny happened simultaneous to that happening was this very frighteningly fast discovery of Wales and Welsh property and you know Cenedigion and Pembrokeshire had the for a while the lowest rates of infection and they're by their coastal and that made them very attractive to people who probably didn't know about these areas beforehand and they're the places where property values have gone insane and these two things happened simultaneously and it's sort of up to the center to figure out now with its new confidence how to deal with that problem yeah and you know i think we all think there is some political will there to do that but i do i do you'd like to think a law could be passed that just says an estate agent's not allowed to say ideal second home or ideal holiday home you know yeah it must be within our means to at least sort of regulate it in some way regulate it to the degree that it's not a sort of form of pornography yeah you know um but it was it was extraordinary talking to people who'd been involved in Glyndwr to um to think of that happening then i mean i remember when i was younger seeing the odd instance of it but it i think wherever you were perhaps not right near well i don't know but i i i, I sort of think there was a sense of it was always happening over there never here yeah yeah um and it, it was uh but i also heard stories that people would do things like break into unoccupied places and just sort of sit down and and have a you know have a can of of tenants and just sort of spend a couple of hours there just sort of <laughs> enjoying themselves and then leave it tidily you know but um yeah I, I we are we are we are in crisis with it um i don't know if you follow better williams on instagram um but i think uh, a lively debate is being had there most days. Oh, I have to check that out. Um, I know we're jumping around a bit, but it's so um, sure. so vast. But uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but is it true that the only sort of song lyrics you have in in the book is a Canny Gummery, uh, that bluggy, and you've, you've got a translated version of that? What was it about that song that you felt that you had to 
I guess, show the lyrics for the whole song and then translate them. We, we, we had Pat on the, on the show recently and, um, you know, talking about David's, um, David's, uh, yeah, holding the mirror up to, to Welsh society and, and calling it out. And, you know, um, yeah. What was it about that song? So, um, I think one of the things about it is it became quite popular and got played on Radio Cymru and it's sort of <laughs> oddly up, it's oddly uplifting yeah. and uh, very tuneful. And, and uh, you know, I think Pissed is a fairly accessible record. And, and, yeah. And, um, you know, a, a brilliant record, but Canagonry is possibly a little more accessible but not that I think David cared or Pat cared about being accessible. So that's not the right adjective to use in terms of discussing that bloogie. But there is, there is a kind of spring in its step to that song. And it's a kind of annihilation of, um, well, you could use the term krachach, but um, it's, it's the, it talks about the always having the Welsh dragon car sticker yeah. always having a holiday in Basque never Spain um, living in a house straight off the set of a popular TV show at the time basically it's sort of saying there's a Emraig middle class that does very well on the, on what's turning into when he wrote it in the early 90s a kind of media post Despedrag media gravy train um, and he also kind of has a go at university lecturers as well, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, a, a, a long day spent at the word processor. So it's, um, my mother used to call it mam and jam, by which she meant this sort of, you sentimentalize Wales. Yeah. But at the same time, you kind of earn a living from, from it. Yeah. So you trowel on the hoil, basically. And, you, and, and I think, most people agree there's an element in Cymraeg media that really did sort of take things to almost a pantomime level in terms of how the language should be um, presented. And at the time of its release, David, I'm told, said, oh, this is about a person who was, I think, I may get this wrong, I think was a weather, a TV weather person and whose father was a notable um, broadcaster themselves. And so he's having a go at nepotism and yeah. bearing in mind the number of people who spoke Cymraeg at the time and who worked in Cymraeg media at the time, it's a fairly small uh, pond of, pe of fish he's talking about. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> he, 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 he kind of chucked a stick of dynamite into that pond, basically. Yeah. But it's good because I think it shows that um, he's not even sort of attacking sacred cows or, um, or or saying the unsayable. He's just saying, let's not get carried away about how how great we are. You know, let's let's not let's never think that the language in itself. Well, no. What am I saying? I think he's saying. Let's let's not get let's not fall into the trap of thinking certain tropes that you can say signify a certain idea of Welshness should be all we are. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. 
but he does it with great wit as well and the delivery is that you know you can hear you can hear the spit leaving oh, his absolutely. mouth <laughs> especially at like the Graf Diana Kamraig like refrain on repeat at the end it's just like yeah the vitriol you can see it and yeah you can see it it's like it's music but you yeah. can see it it's, it's incredible yeah. um, and I mean he has a real coat applied Cymru as well which is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I always think, you know, Dafydd Yu and Iglau, is it? Yeah, and Iglau, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, it just, as a song title, it's just, uh, it says so much. It's like the title of a painting or something. Yeah. It just <laughs> sums up. I'd love to see that painting. Yeah. Like 15, <laughs> 15 years of Welsh culture, you know, in, 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 in four words. I, I think there's a, there's, there's a, there's a, um, a quote from David Yu and actually in, in your book that talks about, um, David being kicked out of one of his one of his gigs. <laughs> yeah, I think you know. I think um, had, I think they'd probably have come to an accord had David lived a bit longer. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think. But you know, that's that's great, isn't it? That there's a, that sort of intergenerational tension. But I think there's a slight. I have much as I sort of. Think it's worth recording that that generation rejected what came before, and it, it was so vital at the time. There is, um, I do think we're too, too. I think we turn on ourselves too easily yeah. in Wales. Yeah, um, and I think that stems from that sense of loss of, of who we were. And that, I tell you what, one of the things I really didn't expect to know to discover to the degree I did writing this book was. A place like BP Llandarcy, the oil refinery, it had three teams, three elevens in football and cricket. Yeah, uh, three, three or four rugby teams. It employed twenty to forty ground staff. It had squash courts, and it was you know Kim Howell says like his brother played for Aberdeen. They always looked forward to playing at Llandarcy. It was the biggest game of the seasons because the condition, the pitch, and the facilities were so amazing. Yeah, and. Although I'm thinking, you know, someone else says it was run by former military people and it's Colonel this or Major this, even though they were civilians. This idea that in industrial South Wales and industrial North Wales, but the, the idea that people who working in industry worked in really good conditions, you know, obviously mining conditions were, were different, but they had improved greatly by the 70s. But um, people working in these new, newer industries like oil refinery, had such a high standard of living, you know. People, there was there was opulence for people in employment, yeah, in, in industry, and I can't imagine how you just go from that to the kind of low-level manufacturing, horrible WDA Japanese circuit, circuit building economy, YTS, f fiddle the unemployment figures economy of the 80s. Yeah, it's only 20 years. That happened from, you know, 1962 to 1982. Um, it was amazing to discover, to think about South Wales as a, a place of full, vibrant employment where people felt prosperous. And and that, that switch in 20 years, when where it happened elsewhere in Britain, the cushion, the blow was cushioned somewhat by property and things like that, uh, landlordism. I think that kind of loss of confidence, you know, talk about the minor strike, 
all the time, but it happened in other industries, that loss of confidence. Yeah. And I think that loss of confidence we experienced meant we found it easier to to turn in on ourselves and on each other. Yeah. Um, and and I think I don't think I think we're coming out of that, but I think that was a kind that was almost an endemic characteristic of that era. Richard, I could talk talk to you about this book for all night. I just conscious of time. I honestly I've been able to put it down and even when I have put it down, I've had the um the audible um audiobook <laughs> in my ears. So I didn't have to put it down and then just then pick it back up. But yeah, just conscious of time is a school night as well. <laughs> um, and we haven't spoken about your favourite album yet. So um No. So yeah, it's this time of the um, the podcast where we ask our guests, you know, to um, you know to to tell us about their favourite album by by a Welsh artist, and you've you've chosen uh, "Boy Time" by Gorky Zygotic Monkey. Um, obviously, um, their third album, their last on on Angst. Um, you know, very prolific band, nine albums in eleven years. Um, what was it about Boy Time that um, that the set? set it apart from, from, from their other albums in the catalogue? Um, I, I think it caught a really interesting moment where um, I loved the early stuff, loved to tie it, um, but they're very young when they started the band. Yeah. But I mean, they're really young. And on the previous album, they covered Robert Wyatt and had a song called Kevin Ayres. And I loved the idea of these people growing up in Pembrokeshire and finding old records, cheap records, you know, hippie records and sort of bringing them into this very young group of people and finding inspiration in it. But I think in boy time, it's perfect because you've got, well, you've got a lot going on. You've got, they see an English and Kavag, the titles in English and Kavag. Um, they go really out there, but even when they, it go really out there like a blood chant. It's still very, very controlled and self-contained and their musicianship is really, and their songwriting is really good. But I just think it's a sort of perfect, it's a record. It's funny. I think you can hear its influence a lot. I, I spoke to Gitto, Super Furry Animals, and he said Gorky's influenced them. Oh, really? Yeah. which was interesting. I don't know to what extent, but he said they did. And I, I, both Mung and Boy Time make me feel like if, if you're in rural Wales and there's a village hall, you're, you're kind of seconds from turning it into this sort of psychedelic space, yeah. this damp, psychedelic, rainy, leafy, green environment. Like it, both records sound like any village hall in the Vrokenvai could suddenly host a kind of weird introspective happening, you know, and probably the things you'd need to make that happen are growing all around you as well. <laughs> 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 but, um, I just think it's, it's, it's a really psychedelic record. And, you know, we were talking about Britpop earlier. This was released in 95, which was the year of Blur versus Oasis. Yeah. And you couldn't get further away from yeah, that nonsense. Absolutely not. Record. Yeah. And in a weird way, there's a sort of, yeah, in the video for Yakida, they wave, well, flags, but, you know, they're smiling, laughing while they do it. And 
there's a sense of um, people who know who they are and what they're doing in this record that I really love. And yeah, I think um, there's a confidence they didn't have before. Yeah, I also think talking about influence, I think you can hear its influence in Kate LeBon and Hugh Hawkline as well. There's yeah. a sort of kind of rural psychedelic quality that's very Welsh and uh, is also to do with singing in Welsh. And the psychedelic, it's truly psychedelic because rather than it being about jangly guitars and sunshine, you can hear people on the edge of a bad psychedelic experience. And that's what makes a real psychedelic yeah. record, that it's actually, there's a dark darkness to the trippiness. I love Miss Trudy because, like, my mother's family was Cymraic speaking in chapel and I had violin lessons. <laughs> and I sort of think... I think if you grew up in that environment, I don't want to speak for Edos or Megan, but um, yeah, I imagine having violin lessons felt very, very natural if you were in a Welsh-speaking, um, perhaps chapel family. And just to hear people singing in English about violin lessons that were obviously had in Wales just felt very, almost radical, you know, sort yeah. of re people re really at home with who they are. And what they do, um, I think. I think for, then, for me, that sort of like you know, it was. Um, you mentioned how young they are. You know, Aeros is only twenty. It's their third album. You know, they're releasing it yeah. when they were in Bromerthin and you know, Carmarthen and um, the, the, the early albums. And you know, you've got like Miss Trudy and like Pai Chito Pam. It sort of feels very sort of school like and. And and then you go like, gosh, yeah, only twenty years old. Well, yeah, yeah. A, a similar yeah. school thing as well. Like in terms of Miss Trudy, it just reminds me of like recorder lessons in school. When you blow yeah. like records out, you can't it's discorded, but they still make it sound like tuneful and amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And it's like it's a slightly, it is wild and it does veer all over the place. But it's a different energy to the first two albums. Yes, mm. it's like they always in a lot of the songs when they break out and break down, they often return back to the sort of yes melodic centre. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I love the fact that they sing in English and in Cymraeg, and I think that looking back, you know, this was a record prior to the success of Catatonia and yeah, Super Furry Animals and Gorky's latest success, and it feels like it kind of doesn't preempt that success those bands had, but it kind of is a a record that's apart from that success and isn't in that context. And I think looking back, I think it's all the stronger for it that yeah. it appeared in its own moment before that dreaded phrase had been coined. Yeah, you know, cool Cymru and. Uh, it sold well as well. It was like it was like a big, it was a big record. You know, they they toured nationally and they got signed on the back of this record. Yeah. So it's a successful record as well. Mm. Um, but I, I think the 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 um, the way it's sequenced is so interesting as well because people often put the kind of freak out, the freeform freak outs in the middle of albums. Yeah. You know, and they always used to make 40 minute albums. They're quite concise their records. And it's interesting that they they um they have eating salt is easy. It's like the end of side one, I think, as it was. If you listen to it on a record, which I did. But um 
Game of uh, Bloodshot and Game of Ice is near the end. Yeah, yeah. So it sort of it goes very kind of out there towards the end rather than the middle of it. And yeah, I think that's yeah. quite interesting. It, it's, it, they're a band at this point that are entirely making the music they want to make. So there's no sort of like real concession to being commercial, but even though it's still relatively accessible. But then there's stuff like you were saying about the mad sort of wig out. So have you heard the bonus track on it, which is impressionistic sounds, which is bonkers? No, that that sounds like, I always thought the unreleased Beatles Carnival of Light probably sounds like that. Yeah, the album (laughs) sort of reminds me of a darker sort of magical mystery tour. Yeah. 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 And also here, you can hear Kevin Ayres, definitely. And and Robert Wyatt, but I the record it really reminds me of is um, is really early Eno, you know, like um, Here Come the Warm Jets, mm. and that sort of yeah. that, that, that sort of manic stabby, yeah, and sort of um, yeah, it's just it it sounds like they imbued that kind of early to mid seventies songwritery prog that's not you know, stuff that was released on Island yeah. or E.G. basically, and. Yeah. Um, it's not like they're pastiching it or covering it. It's sort of being completely imbued by them mm-hmm. and it's now coming out as something different. But it's, it's they're just, I think, Eidos has just got one of the great, great voices. I oh, think it's just yeah. an incredible instrument, his voice, and it can make you, like, you know, later on when the, how I long, how the song, How I Long, yeah. you know, that fre- frequently reduces me to tears, just, but as much as it's the words, it's just the way he sings it, you know. And I think it's quite a soft, quiet boyish voice at times, but it's strong and has such integrity because he's so good at hitting these high notes and not, not disguising the fact he's young doing yeah. it. And yeah. it's, it's very powerful. That. They, they did that um, acoustic sort of stripped-back arrangement like of melancholia like few others did really with the violins come in as well just they've done it throughout all their albums and it's just amazing and the way the it's like the lead instruments are often piano and violin mm. um that's that's yeah there's a sort of strange group dynamic that's never made uh made to feel like it should be any different nor do they draw attention to it Mm. it just is you know that's just who they are it's funny that you mentioned um brian eno earlier because um i wanted to talk to you about the artwork uh which is um apparently inspired by brian eno's another green world so it's sort of like a really sort of psychedelic artwork uh created by alan holmes uh, from the band but it, it strikes me as an, um, you know, like the Holy Bible, where the the uh, the cover completely captures the sound. Yeah, I, I think with this, it's like a perfect embodiment of what they were at the time. It's got that sort of real druidic sort of feel to it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. the typography and everything. It's it's it really captures that sort of mystique and like sort of enigma and allure and yeah, it's a, it's an amazing art. And they they dressed up. For it as well, didn't they? They, they yeah, went full on in the forest. Through. The other thing is on the artwork. Um, is it this one where they've got bananas on the album? Yeah, yeah, with a fish. Because that, yeah, yeah, that's a Kevin Ayers reference, isn't it? Yeah, because he sings banana all the time because he was inspired by Gurdjieff to sing banana. But 
Yeah, the way they look on the inner sleeve, as was yeah. dressed up like that, I love it because there's so much confidence in what they're exuding dressed like that. They're, they're just sort of, they're sort of sitting there mainly and two of them, uh, I think it's Rich and Megan are standing and they're just sort of saying, why would we not be dressed like this yeah. in, in the forest? Why would we not be doing this? And it, it's just sort of, in a weird way, they look kind of almost hard. Yeah. Do they do? It's like A-Ross is dressed like Merlin, you know, um, and yeah. yeah, he just, yeah, looking into the, wistfully into the distance. And I, 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 mean, I suppose the word I'm looking for is they've got great authority. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think Angst were the perfect home for um, Gorky's and the Super Furries in those early yeah. days. Completely yeah, yeah. embracing their madcap sort of nature like. Yeah, this this record and the two first uh, Super Furry singles, or were they, I never know if they were singles yeah, or EPs. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, they, they just feel of a piece and they feel of a piece that's completely confident in kind of, um, you, you know, using the language and the identity and like in the way Griff sang in a, in a Gwyneth accent, you know, it's, it's using that as a source of incredible strength. Um, but there's just this sort of obvious well it's not even a hinterland is it it's not a psychedelic hinterland it's right there in your face dressed yeah. as druids, druids. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's just but, but the, it's all backed up by the music I think and it's just per, perfect record I think and I love the hu- it's funny because there is humour but it's not annoying at all it kind yeah, of no. it sort of adds to the psychedelic properties I think that humour you've got that sort of you don't make yeah, you've got that like the boy time sort of interlude. It's almost like this ra- yeah. radio station yeah. Yeah, <laughs> thing that comes in. Yeah, I and I, the quieter stuff's really really good, and it kind of anticipates what happens later. But them and quite a few of their contemporaries, it happened to teenage fan club as well. Everyone got quite mellow as the nineties progressed, and. Everyone got the inner Paul McCartney solo record sacked. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can you can sort of see that like um where they're going to go at, with um like Gowney Gorfen and um because yeah. you know I think Megan's uh you talked about the violin earlier and obviously that's Megan Child's playing violin and uh this is her first album as a sort of full time member of the band and there's like one of the things that it's just so sort of signature for me for, 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 for Gorky's is, I don't know if this is the right word or phrase, but like the sort of counterpoint between Eros's vocal melody and Megan's violin sort of playing the same yeah, melody, yeah. but almost like, you know, different octave or whatever, but it, it's starting to come out and they're sort of teasing that band. They're going to be coming in that song. And yeah, it's, yes, it's, I remember seeing them live around this time and then maybe, maybe, they did a tour with Broadcast, I think the following year. I think that was 96. Broadcast was their support group. And I saw about four or five dates on that tour because we, we were, I don't think we were ever in the running, but we were hoping, we were trying to sign Broadcast oh. for Dominic. Um, and I remember the, the, the violin sound, Megan sounded louder on that tour than the ones before oh, the yeah. first few times I saw them it was quite it was it, it was they could properly wig out yeah 
uh, including on the violin, uh, Megan, you know, was deaf. But it, I was, I didn't quite know. It, like all, like all good bands, you, when they wig out, you can't work out who's making what sound. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just the group sound. Yeah, you yeah. know, overwhelming. Yeah, what a record, and and it, yeah, I, I love it because it's it captures that pre Cool Cymru moment. It, it's it's. It's this record. It's this record and the first two Superfairy EPs, and every, they're all on angst. It's like yeah. this high water moment of angst, I think. And um, it's also not to take away from any other records they release, but um, there's just this sort of psychedelic wealth, self confidence that is just really when you put it on now. The record, it's just kind of alive with it. Yeah. Uh, any other um, Gorky's albums that come close to it? Um, I'm sure there are. I, I kind of, I like the really later stuff, like the last couple. Mm. I think they kind of by then it feels like they'd sort of slightly retreated, really quite far into themselves. But I, I really love how bit, bits of how how I long to feel that summer in my heart. Yeah. I think are incredible. Yeah. Um, and there are Gorky Five. I think I slightly prefer Gorky Five to Barrafundal, but they, I lo- like them both very much. Yeah. But um, I know there's just some perfect kind of psychedelic swirl, like the cover going on in this record. That I just think it's um, it's just got a bit of an edge, an edge to it. Yeah. That maybe got softened afterwards. Yeah, um, and obviously um, throughout all your books, obviously there's a great soundtrack that could accompany each of them, really, and um, not least uh, Brittle Relics, where mm. you mentioned stuff like Amarahid and Kanagemri and uh, Design for Life. What other classic Welsh albums came close in your thinking? Right. Uh, to talk to you about? Yeah. Yeah, well, either Mung or, or, or Colossal Youth. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I love I love them both. Um, I I I really I really love both of them. Um, I love um, I really love Mug Museum, but I I like nearly everything Kate does. But Mug Museum, I think, is a brilliant record. I really like Hughes Hawkline's last album. Um, is that in the pink condition, is it? Or yeah, no? yeah. That- and then there are acoustics records I really like. Um, Million Teller and Great White Wonder. Great White Wonder. That was recorded in partly in Bristol, I think, that record. I think I remember being around when that was being made. Have I got that right? Yeah, I, th- I think Bristol? so. Yeah, yeah. And it was yeah. in American Holland as well, I think. Yeah. As we, yeah, I think, yeah. Um, then. Um, there's a band that I don't think get their due called the Hepburns. I really like. Okay. Yeah, 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 they're cool. Yeah. Um, and then the the album. My pronunciation is not going to be right, but Kammer Kammer Tuchler. Oh yeah, yeah. Reese is a, a compilation. Yeah, that's. Um, I think as a kind of document of the energy of yeah. like music. Um. There's a couple of songs on Nicky Wire's solo record that are really great. 
yes what's it called bobby bobby accident uh, oh uh, um yeah another one you're about bobby untitled is it yeah um it's called it is called bobby untitled yeah. you're right you're right neil uh that's a that's a lovely song that's a brilliant song um I might be the only person in the world whose favourite Mannix record is Gold Against the Soul. Oh, oh you love that one, Yes, yeah, that's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's up there for me as well, yeah. 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 Um, I, I saw them on that tour uh, and they hadn't, obviously hadn't quite, they were still working away to a degree. And it was, uh, they had, uh, I think, credit to the nation and compulsion with the support bands. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, I I love Letras Tessa, and I, I, yeah. I it's, it's quite an odd sounding record, but all the mm. better for it. Yeah, um, I just I I I love the I love they're just really good musicians, you know. Mm. Uh, James is a really underrated guitarist, I think, and Sean's incredibly talented drummer, and I, I it's, it's just completely out of time that record. It's there's no context yeah. you could put that in. Um, and it's not got the expectations of the first one, but I, I, I like it because it's quite it's quite strange. Um, but it's, it's yeah, it's aged very well, I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then uh, yeah, I like. There's a brilliant Mike Stevens compilation on Tenth Planet of the the early singles, um, many of which ended up re-recorded on Outlander or, or several of them. Yeah. Um, his song Factory Girl is very, very brilliant song, you know. And um, I like that record. And there are lots of records made in Wales that I love. I don't, I'm not talking just about Rockfield, but, um, yeah, the incredible string band, you know, the fact they they made records and wrote records and in Wales and obviously informed by the Welsh landscape. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's things like, yeah, there'd be some really good rave records made in Wales. They're not necessarily sort of classic albums or things, but there's, you know, there's some, they're really good kind of strange sound system records that came out of Wales. And, uh, <laughs> They have their place too. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've, I've always liked to kind of, I don't think we make enough of our sort of free festival, borderline crusty, chaotic culture in Wales. And uh, for a lot of the time, it was how people experienced music and people enjoyed themselves. And uh, I, you know, yeah, no one's made the kind of definitive compilation of all that stuff because probably getting hold of the people who own the copyright, or even if any of it was in copyright, would be quite challenging. <laughs> but um, there's definitely a kind of uh, story to be told about about sound systems in the Welsh landscape. That could be your next book, Richard. Yeah, I don't think so. But no. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 great talking. I've I've. Given that Brittle with Relics isn't really, yeah, you know, music doesn't feature in it that much, so it's really great to talk about it with you both in that context because I've not talked about it in this context before. So yes, 
it's, right, it's yeah. really good to do that no yeah thank you ever so much Richard it's been an absolute pleasure and um, yeah really appreciate uh, your time tonight and yeah thank you so much for the book because it, it means it means the world to me to be honest so uh, yeah to finish this week we've got quite an apt uh, tune uh, for an episode where we've been discussing uh, Welsh identity in all its forms a North Wales uh, hip hop artist called Sage Todds uh, recently posted on his Twitter account um, you know have you ever wondered what Welsh drill would sound like it went absolutely huge like pretty much overnight the full song's out today with a music video it's called Round Around and here it is